Well, friends, what hope do you have in times like these? What hope do you have in times like these when we feel oftentimes as Christians that for every step forward we take two steps back? Maybe you feel that way in your own personal life, that you start to gain some ground in, in a struggle that you're having or a question that you have, a doubt that you wrestle with, and then all of a sudden it all comes crashing down, all the progress that you've made. Maybe you feel that way in our nation, that every time there seems to be some glimmer of hope in our culture, you turn around and there's ten things to be discouraged about. We feel the slipping morality in the world around us, and many of us feel the slipping of our own faith because of difficulties we face. What hope do we have in any success or victory? What hope is there specifically for the Christian when they look around and realize that your plans are not coming to completion? Your hopes and dreams are quickly turning into a dumpster fire of your burned up joys. When you're constantly wrestling with failure as a parent or a grandparent, as an employee or employer, as a church member, as a church leader. What hope is there? Well, friends, I believe as we look at our futures, whatever they may be, and continue our following of Christ in our own lives, this morning's passage that we come to in Acts 8 could go a long way in growing our minds and our hearts and really our whole lives in trusting God in the midst of uncertainty and feelings of failure. We're continuing our study through the Acts of the Apostles, or as I've mentioned a few times now, the ongoing Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. I really do believe that's a right way of thinking about this book. So far, at every turn and every twist, we have seen that it has been Jesus' mission that has been laid out, and that it is Jesus-focused in every way, and that it is Jesus-fueled. So far, we've seen that in every way, and we saw that initially back in the beginning in Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 is this kind of foundational verse for understanding the whole book where Jesus, before he was taken up to the throne in heaven, told his little band of brothers there with him, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And that's pretty much exactly what we've seen happen so far, right? They've received the power of the Spirit and they have been his witnesses, proclaiming the hope in Jerusalem and the people of Israel that this new and reigning Messiah, this sent Savior, King Jesus, is their hope. Even as their unity as a church has been threatened from within, and now even as their mission has been threatened from without. But now what will we do? If you were here last week, you remember that it had all reached a boiling point. So we saw in, in Acts 6-7, in the beginning of 8, this man Stephen, one of the chosen seven to serve the church, had begun to proclaim Jesus Christ and give witness to Jesus Christ and do amazing things, and upon doing it, he's killed. He's drug out of the city and stoned. 
And we ended last week considering this very question. What would happen now that their mission has ended in death? What would Jesus do now through them? Well, friends, let's go back to Acts 8 then and see where we go from here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me there. Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible of your own or forgot yours today, you can use that pew Bible there in front of you. Acts chapter 8. It's on page 861. If you're new to the Bible, when you get to page 861, just look for that big number 8. And that's where I'm going to begin reading in a moment. And as always, if, if you're here today and you don't have a personal Bible, we would love to give you a Bible as our gift to you today. And we have those on the table in the foyer. You can grab one on your way out today. They're blue. Please grab it. Take it home. Begin reading the book of Acts and maybe asking somebody here uh, to, to, to share it with you, join with you in reading it. Well, let me invite you once more to stand in honor of reading God's word. We again, as you're standing, have a longer passage today. We're going to be looking at Acts 8, 1 through 40. But I'm just going to read the first eight verses to get us going. Hear now the word of the Lord for us today from Acts 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. As we read there in those first eight verses of Acts 8, we are certainly dropped right back into the, the middle of the action. But we find now that things are beginning to change in a very significant way. And that's really what we see kind of borne out in Acts 8. Acts 8 really acts as kind of a hinge chapter in the book of Acts. It brings us to a turning point in the story. There's a fundamental shift in how and where now the gospel and the gospel mission goes. And I just want to show my hand from the beginning for this sermon that the main thing that I want us to see throughout this and each point of the way, because it, I think it actually helps us understand some of this, the harder portions of this chapter that we're going to get to. Here's what Luke, the author, really wants us to see in this chapter, that no one, no one can mess up the mission of Jesus. And at the same time, the mission of Jesus is to redeem, redeem anyone who's messed up but turns to him. So no one can mess up the mission of Jesus. And the mission of Jesus is to redeem anyone who is messed up and turns to him. We really see that really in the three stories, all connected by this guy, Philip. This guy, Philip, if you want to write these down to guide our time, here are the three sections. First, we're going to see joy for the far off. Joy for the far off. And this is in verses 1 through 8. Next, we're going to see amazement. For the selfish, amazement for the selfish in verses 9 through 25. And then finally, we're going to see welcome for the outcast in verses 26 through 40. Joy for the far off, 
amazement for the selfish and welcome for the outcast. And as we look at each of these, my prayer for us has been that God would show us that even in the midst of, of our seeming failures and our struggles and the difficulties of the times, he can use us in mighty ways to bring his kingdom, to grow his kingdom, and to impact eternity for the people around us. So let's start by thinking about joy for the far off. Last week, as I mentioned a minute ago, we ended our time together by considering those first three verses of Acts chapter 8. But I want us to return there for a minute because Luke's story of the fulfillment of Jesus' mission to bring his kingdom, these verses, like I said, create a tremendous hinge. It's one of those places, like we saw back in Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit comes, that bring a great turn in the story. It's a turn we might not expect because it seems like the movement of God has finally met its match in this man's soul. So far, every step of the way, God's people have been able to walk through these dark times, whether that's with Ananias and Sapphira, or, or the division among the widows, or, or even Peter and John, or all the apostles being put on trial. They've been able to navigate their way through them. God has provided. But now we find that Stephen has been killed, and there's this man named Saul, who was there as a watchman of the coats. So stones are being thrown. And Luke wants us to see that this Saul figure... He's important. And he wants you to see that he's important by pointing out that seemingly random detail that he's there watching the coats. We find out there in verse 3 why he is so important. It's because he proves now to be the largest and most destructive threat to the church so far. More than the threats of division among the body of believers, more than the jealous and frustrated Jewish council, more even than Caiaphas, the high priest, who put Jesus himself to death. Verse 3 says, Saul is ravaging the church. Ravaging the church. That word for ravaging is a word that's used to describe what wild animals do to their prey when they catch them. Literally, he is tearing them apart. Saul here acts as a lion who is praying and pouncing upon the people of God as he would enter into the very homes and drag them out, men and women, to prison. And just as the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ to men and women alike, we find that this persecution of that gospel is just as unbiased. Saul doesn't care if they're a man or a woman. Imagine the horror that spread through the homes of these thousands of early believers in Jerusalem. Imagine the terror as they laid their heads down at night to try to get some sleep. Imagine the trembling even as they had gathered to pray and to sing and to hear the apostles' teaching. The church here is under heavy pressure. They're under the heavy pressure of a system that wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. And this man Saul had made his mission the exact opposite of Jesus Christ. Saul's mission was to make sure that the good news of Jesus Christ didn't make it to another household. Like a great purge, it seems like the Jewish leaders have given the thumbs up to Saul who's so zealous for Judaism to bring an end to all things that have to do with Jesus. And what is the result? What is the result of this ravaging? We see there in verse 2 that the church is scattered. The apostles stick around, continuing to foster a church there in Jerusalem, as we'll find later on. But we're told here that everyone else splits. They're driven out of the city of Jerusalem. We see here that this word scattered is used twice in just these three verses to describe what happens. 
We see that the ones who have fought for unity so hard for so long now in some way have lost it. Does this mean that the mission of Jesus is now failing? What would you do in this situation? What would you do if the religious leaders and the political system rose up against you to crush you crush you and your allegiance to Christ? We know that countless Christians have done what they have done throughout the centuries. I mentioned this last week. It's an often quote, used quote that the blood of martyrs is the seed for the church. We look and we see that Christian history is full of the blood of martyrs for those who have stood firm amidst the persecution. But what would you do? Would you run for the hills? I mean, that's exactly what we see in today's world, isn't it? It's the great temptations, temptation that Christians face when the world around them doesn't love them or their message. It's the great temptation that Christians have faced for, for centuries now. We are facing the same temptation of a growing culture that increasingly is darkened by sin and increasingly opposed to Christianity and the Christ that we follow. Many of you see it right next door. You see it in the cubicle next to you. You see it on the television screen and in the newspaper. And what are we tempted to do when we face our own kind of scattering? To run for the hills. To get away from it all to build up our own little kingdoms of peace and quiet away from the hustle and bustle, to leave the depraved to themselves while we go carve out a piece of heaven for ourselves. But friends, make no mistake. We have not grazed the surface in this society of what these early followers of Jesus were facing, the threats, the imprisonment, and the death. And yet... Do not miss this. What do they do? Look back at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Brothers and sisters, what do these early Christians do in the face of a culture that wants them to fail? They run toward it not away from it. They break into the city, not away from it. They suffer for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. They run to those who are far off. And don't miss this. The persecution and the trial now becomes the very means by which Jesus furthers his mission. Don't miss this. this, is, this they're scattering to the cities of Judea and Samaria is not the failure that they may have assumed, but it is the completion of what God had promised. What a message for our own times. That perhaps the answer for us in an increasingly opposed culture is to not run away from the people, but to run to them. but also don't assume it was easy. Philip's arrival in the city of Samaria wasn't a promised success. I mean, it was promised by Jesus, but you have to assume that he didn't think it would just go as easy as maybe it does here. He's going to a city as a risky thing, as it will be for all of us. See, Philip was a Jew, remember? His background, he's a Hellenist Jew. 
And the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans goes all the way back to 1 Kings 12. So we're getting back into the Old Testament here. If you have some time this week, go back and read 1 Kings 12. We see that there's this rebellion there from the northern kingdom under David's rule in Jerusalem. So the northern kingdom splits from Jerusalem. And after they are taken over by Assyria, the Assyrian king sent other nations then to live and inhabit the northern kingdom. And along with some priests, the Assyrian king sent in to make sure the people weren't judged by God. We have the rise of a city called Samaria. You have a rise of this people who serve God along with their own false gods, following their own customs. And because of this, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were less than. They were compromised and they were unworthy of the faith. I'm sure if all of us sat here and thought about it, we could think of some people that we might put into that category. But Philip goes. He doesn't break for the peaceful pastures of Gaza, but goes to the city of Samaria and proclaims to them, verse 5 says, the Christ. What does this mean? Well, it's the same hope of the gospel that we hold out to those around us today. It's the same hope that we hold out to you if you're here and you're not a Christian. That Jesus is the Christ, meaning he is the Messiah. He is the sent one is what that word literally means. He is the very person that God the Father sent to earth to come as the one who can save us. And in being sent, he came to live a perfect life without sin and without blemish, without failure. And yet, in his living, he gives himself over to death so that he may take the judgment for sin that we, failures as we are, deserve. When Philip proclaims to the Samaritans that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying that despite all of the wickedness that has inhabited this city, for centuries upon centuries. All of that doesn't matter if you turn and look to the one who was sent to save you. That Christ, as the sent one, can come and take away all of the wickedness and all of the evil and that he can wash you clean. And that for them, apart from Jesus' death upon the cross, it doesn't matter how nice and cleaned up they may get it doesn't matter how pure their worship may be. Without Christ, they're not worthy to worship the one true God. Philip teaches them that they need someone to pay for their sin. They need someone to bring them before God. And this is who Jesus is. This is why Philip can offer the hope to the Samaritans and why we can offer the same hope today to those around us. This wasn't news to Jesus, though. Not only had he told them back in Acts 1.8 that he was going to send them to Samaria, but what we see Philip do here is actually a fulfillment of what's prophesied long ago in Ezekiel 37. There, the prophet foretells us of this great hope. He says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. The same hope for Israel is now extended to the Samaritans as well. 
This is exactly what we see taking place in Philip's going. And as he proclaimed, he did many signs and wonders. Ending in verse 8, it says, So there was much joy in that city. Friends, what of us? What of us? What of our city? Can the same be said? Let me put it to you as plainly and directly as possible. Is there much joy in the city because of you? Is there much joy in your neighbors because of you? Is there much joy in your co-workers because of you? Is there much joy in your own children because of you? Children, is there much joy in your siblings and your friends because of you? For some of us, this may be the fruit with which we can say, yes, there's joy because of my long-time investment in my friends and my neighbors and my co-workers, bearing with them for years and years and years. And yes, I'm starting to see some joy there. But for others, we may need to take stock and notice a lack of joy in the lives of those around us because of us. We may notice that we seem to be keen on bringing down the joy a few notches rather than turning it up. And so the question for us should be, how can there be much joy in the world around us if there is not much joy in us? Not worldly happiness, but heavenly joy. How can we have it for ourselves and how can we give it to others? Well, friends, I think the only way it comes, because it came here through Philip, is to not look to the things of this world for passing pleasure but to set your hope upon Christ Jesus. To run to him when you're feeling pressed. To remember him when you're feeling pulled down. To trust in him when you're feeling overwhelmed by your own sin and despair. For some of us, we struggle so much with having joy ourselves and imparting joy to others because we haven't let ourselves off the hook. But friend, hear me, if you are a Christian, you have great joy and a great opportunity to have joy because you have great freedom in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. So be filled with joy. Cling to him in prayer and in song and committing his word, not just to your head as if he's going to give you a multiplication test down the line. No, commit his word to your hearts. That's exactly what we see that this section shows us. That when we are committed to the Lord and finding joy in Him and not in this world, amazing and supernaturally, God uses our lives as the light of the world. A living testimony to a greater hope than anything that can ever be found in this world. That's exactly what this first section shows us as we see that Jesus' mission will not be thwarted, but it will go exactly where he said it would, and when it goes, it will do amazing things. We see some of these amazing things in our very next section of the passage. We see an example of this one who is far off being brought in, this one who is amazing everyone, uh, now brought into his own amazement. So let's consider that story there in the amazement for the selfish in verses 9 through 25. Look back at verse 9. 
But there was, a, so, so this but here enters into the story. Philip is there, Samaria, claim, proclaiming the gospel, but it's going to give us a backstory, a little bit of what's going on in Samaria. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. So now we're introduced to one of these Samaritans in particular, one who is pretty popular from the sounds of it. He's a magician. He's the one who does magic, practicing the magic for the people in the city. And we see here that two different words are used two different times in just three verses to describe him. Did you catch them? It says twice that Simon amazed the people of Samaria. And it says twice that they all paid attention to him. So he amazed them, and they were all paying attention. Evidently, whatever he was doing, I don't know if it was levitation, or he was like sitting in a box of water for three hours, holding his breath, I don't know. But whatever he was doing was so amazing that they had ascribed godlike status to him, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, if you're a Christian, take yourself out into the world for a second, okay? If you were looking for accolades from people, if you were looking for popularity, and you were looking for somebody to give you a compliment, to give your life worth, this is a pretty good one. This guy is the power of God that is called great. Is there ever a description of someone who thought more highly of themselves than they ought? That Simon is the man. He shows us what a little popularity and evidently a little skill and a little smoke and mirrors can do. But as we continue on, we find that the people of Samaria are taken over by a greater power and have their amazement now turned to someone else. Look back at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Things begin to change when Philip comes to town with his own signs and wonders and he proclaims the truly great. We should note once more how the signs and wonders draw people in but what they are actually believing is in the good news about the kingdom of God and about Christ. That this good news, that through Jesus Christ, God has created an everlasting kingdom of Jews and Samaritans and to the ends of the earth. But perhaps what is truly amazing in this passage is that what looks like a dramatic conversion is that Simon the magician himself not only believes, not only receives baptism, but starts to follow Peter as well. Luke adds that what really gets Simon's attention are the signs and the great miracles done by Philip. And just as the Samaritans were amazed by Simon's magic, so now Simon is amazed by what Philip can do. But Simon's story here is, is really just the beginning. Look back at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, the, the two big guys. They're coming on down. The guys from corporate, here they come. 
He came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now what's going on here? Well, we find that the apostles are still the authority in the church at this time, even as it expands out. The apostles are the ones who have been commissioned by Jesus himself, and they are the ones who hold the authority that is necessary for the kingdom to expand. And even though Philip does these signs and wonders, he preaches the gospel effectively and baptizes those who believe, Peter and John set out for Samaria when they heard what had happened. And when they show up, they pray that the Samaritans would receive the Spirit because even though they were baptized in Jesus' name, verse 15 says the Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. Now we may wonder, what is this all about? You'll remember back in Acts 2.38 at Pentecost, there was the offer to repent and be baptized in order to receive the Spirit. But now the Samaritans believed and were baptized, yet did not receive the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is that Luke tells the story as though nothing strange is going on here. Luke doesn't say, and oddly enough, they had not received the Spirit. Well, we see here that God waits on the arrival of his appointed apostles to impart the Spirit to the Samaritans. What do we learn here? Well, we learn that thus far in Acts, no exact pattern has been set up. That is not Luke's primary goal in writing this story, is to set up a pattern so that we may all follow a pattern. Why is this? It's because this idea of baptism and receiving of the Holy Spirit as it's recorded in Acts don't present things the way that they should always be per se, but to highlight God's working in particularly in, in pioneer settings as the gospel advances into new regions. This is important here not to show us a difference between baptism in water and baptism of the Spirit, but to show us the importance of the apostles coming and bringing the Spirit. Why does the Spirit not come when they're baptized with water? Because God wants to help establish a unity among these two people by holding back the Spirit until the apostles come. You can think about it, if the apostles did not come, perhaps the Samaritans would have thought, well, they don't really want anything to do with us. We'll have to do our own thing in following Jesus. Had the apostles not gone, perhaps the Jews of the time would have thought, well, there's still those stinky Samaritans. We'll do our own Christian thing over here and we'll just keep them separate. No, but in the apostles' arrival and in the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans, we see that now there's a unity, a uniformity being brought among the Christians. So like we've seen before in this book, Luke tells us about an event that is not meant to imply a pattern or prescribed a continual practice for us today, as if any of us are big A apostles. But he writes it to help us see how Jesus was at work then and how he was building his kingdom through his chosen witnesses. And this giving of the Spirit is a very interesting thing, especially for Simon. Look back at verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Well, that's awkward. It seems that Simon witnesses the great power of Peter and John in the coming of the Spirit. And this magician gets this little idea in his head that if he acquired this same power, then he can maintain his status as the amazing Simon. But what Peter does for him is expose the baggage he brings to his newfound faith. Now, some may hear this and say, well, Peter's not so loving here, is he? But Peter understands that the most loving thing that he can do for Simon is not to make him feel good about himself. Yeah, oh, well, friend, you, you, you've just slightly misunderstood it. Let, let me help you. No, Peter comes at him, as Peter always does, full force. And he rebukes the brother. He says that, that, it, that there is no help in you trying to wrangle God and use him for your own purposes. The Holy Spirit cannot be controlled, and he cannot be bought. Now, there's some debate here on whether Simon is truly a Christian or not. Personally, I, I think the text makes it clear that he is because it describes Simon the same way it does everyone else who believes. It says that they were believed and were baptized. So what are we to do with Simon's desire to purchase the Spirit? Is this a way a Christian should talk? Has he totally misunderstood what it means to be a follower of Jesus and, and the kingdom of God? Well, I think this is exactly why Luke includes the story here. What we find in Simon, as we find in all of us, is that the coming of the Spirit and the saving of our souls does not mean that we're going to have it all figured out right out of the gate. What Luke intends to teach us here through Simon's story, because you have to know that there are many other stories of Samaritans going off the rails. So why does Luke pick Simon? What Luke wants to teach us here is that the coming of the gospel doesn't only present us with good news, but it also breaks down the pride and self-salvation we have stored up in our own hearts, which is bad news. The amazing news of Jesus is that he comes to save and correct. The amazing power of the Holy Spirit is that he comes upon us to sanctify us. And the amazing gift of the apostles' teaching and now fellow believers in our own lives who apply the word to our lives is that we don't have to walk in error all of our days. Peter shows us what we should be calling one another to in view of our own sin. Repentance. See, it doesn't seem that Peter is calling for an initial repentance here, but he's calling for a specific repentance for a specific sin of thinking that he can take God and go, Back and do what he used to in his old life. And so Simon shows us a glimmer of this repentance in asking for prayer himself. That Peter's piercing rebuke surrounding the bitterness of wanting to be great and the bond of pride would be broken down. Again, we are reminded that Jesus' mission cannot be stopped by anyone. And at the same time, it is held out for anyone who would take note of their sin and turn to him in repentance. And so verse 25 tells us, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But we aren't done with Philip's story yet. He has one more task to bring the far off in. Let's think about point three, welcome for the outcast. Look back at verse 26 as we consider the final scene. 
Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, just as a side note, Luke wants us to know this is a desert place because it's not like an ideal place to go. It's not like Philip just came up with in his own mind to show up to this place because they had good cheeseburgers or something, right? He's sent here on purpose for a purpose to do something. So from the get-go, we know something special is happening here, and this is a particularly special event, event because an angel shows up and gives Philip direction. Similar to how the angels show up and start orchestrating the coming of Jesus Christ in Luke's opening chapters, the angel is guiding and directing as Jesus' mission now spread to a new place. Look back at verse 27. And he rose and went. That's good. We should follow in that. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now stop there. Just consider a couple things about this man. First, he is a eunuch from Ethiopia. Now, children, if you don't know what a eunuch is, you can ask your parents this afternoon at lunch. While we have, but we see here also that he does have some amount of authority. Luke makes clear throughout this passage that though he has authority, though he, he operates as, as an official and he's in charge of the treasure of the queen of Ethiopia, that's not how Luke describes him throughout the story. He describes him as what? As a eunuch. As a eunuch. He would have been an outcast in society, perhaps set apart for a special service. But because of his marring and his scars, he would not have been accepted as clean, especially not in the Jewish religion. But you say, Pastor, he's Ethiopian, not Jewish. But wait, there's a second thing that Luke holds out. This Ethiopian was traveling back. Back from where? Verse 28 tells us that he's on his way back from Jerusalem where he was worshiping and further, he's reading from the Hebrew Scriptures. Who is this man? Well, this man is a proselyte, a God-fearing, God-worshipping Jewish Ethiopian. He is not a Gentile, but one who walks in the old ways of God. And this is crucial to understanding why things seem to move so fast for this man. Because a lot is about to happen over the span of a few hours for this guy. And they happen because of where he's coming from in the base of his knowledge. Picking up in verse 29, we read, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And then Philip, like any good evangelist, when he sees an open door, opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, before we go any further, let me just note what biblical evangelism looks like according to this passage. That it is first empowered by the Spirit. Do you see that? See, it was the Holy Spirit who was leading Philip. And second, it's founded upon the Word. 
See, it was Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 that consumed that initial conversation. From there, the passage says that Philip obeyed the great commission and proceeded to teach the eunuch all that Christ had said and taught and commanded. Friends, this, what we find here in this chariot on a desert highway is a beautiful picture of what it looks like for us to come into the lives of outcasts and to open the word of God with them and to reason with them from the scriptures that hope comes from Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Because friends, it is this Jesus who Isaiah did write about, who stood silent before the courts and is able to give a defense but chose not to so that he may be handed over to the slaughter. This is the one who welcomes us into the ever-expanding kingdom of God. And this is the one in whom the eunuch places his trust as well. Look back at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. So as Philip unpacks the beauty of the gospel, we find the eunuch responds. He responds. But at the same time, as clear as his response might seem on the surface, it actually presents some of the biggest questions and uncertainties that we find in the book of Acts. For one, in many of your modern translations, you may notice the odd absence of Acts 8.37. It's not in there. If you want to know why, I could give you a very brief reason why, because many of the older translations of the Bible used Acts 8.37, which didn't actually appear in the text until around 500 or 600 A.D., and so many of our modern translations, if we have found new uh, original writings and new copies of the Bible, we find that it's missing. And so we've chosen to go with the, the oldest and, and most reliable of translations. That's a short answer. If you want to know more, you can ask me afterwards. But besides all that, many like to take this passage and make some direct applications for ourselves and how we understand what we call conversion, that is coming to Christ and leaving our old lives, and we find this text, as it relates to that, and the idea of baptism, that there are actually several layers at play here. Now, these are things that we're going to flesh out more and more as we progress through this book, because they're some of the same questions we come over and over again. But I think there are a few things we can learn here about God's purpose in conversion and baptism that might actually really help us better today and help us read stories like this in a way that God intends us to. So let me give you two things that this passage doesn't teach us about conversion and baptism. And then two things that it does teach us. First, this passage doesn't command us to baptize everyone who just makes a random profession. What we find here is not a case for spontaneous baptism of anyone who raises their hand or makes some claim to follow Jesus. There's no command of the such in this passage. In fact, there's no command at all. It's a story. There's much more going on here than a one-off revival service with fog machines and long guitar solos and a charismatic teacher. That's not what's happening. Second, this passage doesn't hold the Bible's entire teaching about baptism. One of the great tragedies of our day is that folks only know this passage when it comes to the Bible's teaching on baptism. But even in Acts, there's so much more to say. 
So what does it teach us then? First, that it is right and good to respond to gospel conversion and the mark of inclusion into that gospel family with baptism. Luke wants us to know about how Philip's trip to the Ethiopian eunuch's chariot shows us that God's mission to the ends of the earth is not going to be just for the ones who have it all together. But this gospel is for the outcast, the far off, and the marred. And his baptism shows that, that he is now being included into this new family. The good news is for people with baggage. But the second thing we can learn here is that baptism is for those who have counted the cost of following Jesus. What we find in this man is one who has already been on the outskirts of the Jewish community, but in turning to Jesus and becoming a part of this new covenant, he now puts himself at an even, at an even greater risk. But this doesn't hold him back. His desire to be baptized here shows a genuine desire to leave the life that he had known to grow up into the kingdom that God is now building and to trust in no one else except for Jesus Christ. We don't know what threats he faced when he arrived back in the courts of Queen Candace. We don't know what hardships he faced in being the first Christian in Ethiopia. But friends, I can tell you this, he did. And yet he chose to follow Christ. And that gets at the greater point of this passage. It's actually the thread that has run throughout the passage of new Christians on the frontier of Jesus' mission the whole time. The Ethiopian eunuch has the same response as the people in the city of Samaria. Did you get it? The end of verse 39 says that he goes on his way rejoicing. Now Philip, on the other hand, by some miraculous work of God, is taken away and finds himself in Azotus, where he continues to preach until he reaches Caesarea, I'll let you guys discuss what that looked like over lunch. But the rejoicing of the eunuch and the joy of the Samaritans, even Simon, leaves us with the burning question this passage presents. Have you been brought into this kingdom of joy? You who were once far off, you who have baggage and the scars of a chaotic life, have you been brought into this joyous kingdom you who were once prideful and full of malice, bitterness, and jealousy. Have you been brought into this joyous kingdom? You who are scattered in fear and worry. The glory of Jesus, my friends, is the joy of the nations. The glory of Jesus is the rest of his people. And the glory of Jesus is the hope that we are called to hold out so that someday when we join with all the saints in eternity, as we look around and notice those from Jerusalem, those from Samaria, those from Ethiopia, those from China, those from Brazil, those from Canada, those from America, we may see that our great reward is not a nice house on a hill, our great reward isn't some beautiful little crown of jewels that we get to wear around. But our great reward is the impact that we've had in the faces of those believers that we've been a part of seeing Jesus go to. For some of us, that means giving, 
giving to missionaries who are going. For some of us, that means going ourselves. For some of us, that means remaining faithful in our neighborhoods where we don't see fruit for years and years and years, but someday our children step forward and say, because of my mom and dad's faithfulness, I want to go. For some of us, that means getting up and going to work tomorrow, even though it's July 5th and we think we should have it off. And we do it without grumbling or complaining. Friends, the joy of the nations is the glory of Jesus. It is the joy of his kingdom. Will we be about it? Let me pray. Father, we come to you now trusting in the goodness and glory of Christ, trusting that it is he who has saved us and he who now equips us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so, God, we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would make us, even as we partake of this meal, remembering Christ, who is our great high priest, Christ, who is our sacrifice, Christ, who is our Savior, that we would go, that we would display the wonder of Christ. Help us, Lord, as we partake in this time. Amen.